0: Good morning to all of you. Let us uh, open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll focus our attention this morning on verse 17, the first half of that verse. But let me begin reading in verse 14. The word of God says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and take the helmet of salvation. Just for my own sake, Please join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's help. Father, we need you this morning. We need for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to be our teacher. Uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, the truth will go forth with power. And I pray, Lord, that you will bring about further transformation in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you will save sinners and continue to sanctify the saints. And may Christ will be exalted. Above all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last several weeks, we have been engaged in what might appropriately be called the spiritual warfare, which started back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Let me give you a brief recap of where we have been so far. In verse 10, Paul called us to be what? To be strong in the Lord. Clearly this battle is not something we can endure on our own strength. Therefore we must be, we must be strong in light of our union with Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are never independently strong. We are never independently strong. We can be strong only in the Lord which further means that we are strong only insofar as we make much of Christ in our lives. Then in verse 11, we were introduced to the armor of God. Once again, here Paul is using the imagery of a soldier heading into the battlefield to fight. The idea, of course, is that no soldier would ever venture into the heat of the battle without being properly armed and protected. The same is true of spiritual battle, hence the need for the armor of God, which reminds us, which reminds us that the idea of letting go and letting God is anti-biblical. Have I said that before? A few times. It is very unbiblical. In other words, the pop song, Jesus take the wheel is very misleading to say the least, yes, Jesus is in control of the car and all of the aspects of your driving, but by all means, do not take your hands off the wheel. Yes, faith is a gift from God, inwardly worked in us by the Spirit of God as we respond to God's written revelation, but we must take up the shield of faith. We wrestle. We wrestle, as I said last Sunday, it is a conscious act, but there is a critical element of the spiritual battle, which makes the armor even more necessary and essential. What is that element? It is what Paul refers to as the schemes of the devil. Also in verse 11, these are satanic plans crafted in the mind of Satan himself for the purpose of disrupting destroying, confusing, and harassing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is of utmost importance that we know what these schemes are. Several weeks ago, I said that these schemes of the devil are to be understood in light of what? Can anybody remember? Of course, I'm asking you to speak in public, which is a big deal. So I'm not going to do that. In light of each of the pieces of the armor, of God is it the only way to understand them. In other words, the armor of God itself gives us the answer as to what these satanic schemes are because the armor is God's provision in response to these attacks. What are the schemes then? Well, here they are. Satan desires to distort the truth. Therefore, we need what? The belt of truth. Satan desires to destroy righteousness. Therefore we need the breastplate of righteousness. Satan desires to create conflict and division. Therefore we need the shoes of the gospel of peace. Satan desires to produce pride and unbelief in us. Therefore we need to take up the shield of faith. This morning we have landed on the fifth piece of the armor, namely the helmet of salvation. But as we consider this particular piece of the armor, it is imperative that we ask one critical question, which is the same question we haven't been asking all along. Let me work up to it. Up until now, the logic has been quite obvious. Satan attacks with falsehoods. Therefore, our protection is objective truth, right? Satan promotes unrighteousness. Therefore, our protection is, you know it. Righteousness. I gave you a big clue there, right? That's the pattern. Now, do you see it? That's the pattern, right? Each satanic scheme is countered by each particular piece of the armor. So the piece itself reveals the specific scheme and you can go down the list and easily identify the specific satanic scheme. Paul has in mind the critical question when dealing with this particular piece of the armor is as follows from what, from what does the helmet of salvation protect us from what does the helmet of salvation protect us? In other words, what is the specific scheme of Satan? We are dealing with when we speak of the helmet of salvation. Now that's a good question. And I'm glad you asked it. Brothers and sisters, If we don't answer this question, we won't understand the specific call. Paul is extended extending to us this morning because the answer might not be as obvious when it comes to this particular piece of the armor of God. So let me give you the first points to help us understand the analogy employed the analogy employed. Why a helmet? Why a helmet? Well, think think with me about the massive importance we give to our heads. I have an uncle in Chile who used to ride motorcycles one day. He had a nasty, nasty accident. He broke. I don't know how many bones his body was twisted in ways. I don't even understand, but he survived. You know why? He was wearing a helmet. His brain endured the collision and he made a full recovery. I also remember growing up in Chile, how our schools would do earthquake drills. You may not know this, but Chile is one of the most seismic countries in the world. And the first thing they would tell us during those drills was this, get under your desk and put your hands over your head. Moreover, when my kids want to go for a bike ride around the neighborhood, we tell them two things. Don't go too fast and wear a helmet. In other words, it's okay. If you break a bone and rip open your skin, just don't mess with your head. Don't mess with the head. And even meteorologists make much of our heads, don't they? What, what are we supposed to do in case of a tornado? Find a lower level room without windows and exterior walls. And if possible, wear a bicycle helmet to protect your head from flying debris. Clearly the head matters. Clearly, we understand the delicate nature and the essential use of our heads. We seek to protect them at all costs. Obviously, however, for the Apostle Paul, the concern is not primarily with the physical head. In other words, he's not referring to a helmet for the material brain. When Paul talks about the helmet, he's thinking about a different type of head since his discussion is concerning spiritual matters. Therefore, Paul is speaking about the mind. He is addressing our thoughts. Hence the analogy employed. Now that much is clear. What is not so clear at this point is this. Why is the helmet called salvation? Why is the helmet called salvation? What I'm trying to get at is this. It seems that for the apostle Paul, Our thoughts, our thinking, and our salvation are somewhat connected, somehow. There's an intimate relationship between our salvation and our thought, our thinking. What is that relationship? Well, this leads me to my second consideration for this morning, the scheme exposed. I want to expose the scheme of Satan behind this. In order to see how salvation is a helmet that protects our thinking, I need to help you see what the helmet of salvation is meant to protect us from. We need to expose the satanic scheme that stands behind the need for the helmet of salvation. And to do so, I will bring to your attention a word that is very much loaded with heavy, heavy connotations. This word that I'm about to show you represents a worldview an ideology, the implementation of which can be utterly devastating to any society. It is a word that has been talked about for quite some time and as of late has become central to many conversations. Can anybody guess out of the millions and millions and millions of words, can anybody guess what word am I thinking of? Just one word, Marxism, Marxism. Do I have your attention now? Let me be clear. I do not bring this word to your attention for the sake of controversy. I have a very specific purpose for it. I want to show you how Marxism as an ideology can actually be proven to be a scheme of Satan himself and how this scheme can shed light as to what the helmet of salvation is. I hope that as we do this, the connections will become clear. Some time ago, I was reading an article in an academic theological journal, and I came across one particular article titled Marx's New Religion. Marx's New Religion. In this article, the author explains how Marx and his ideas are still operative in the world, primarily Marxist philosophy known as materialism, which the author of the article says, and I quote, Forms the basis for the current governments of China, North Korea, and Cuba, among others. That's quite relevant. If you ask me, Marxism is alive and well, what is materialism materialism as as the word implies teaches that the world is made up of that, which is material or tangible only, and that that, which is spiritual does not exist to use biblical language applied to humans. According to the philosophical materialism promoted by Marx, the inner being of which Paul spoke in Ephesians 3:16, does not exist. There is no such thing as the inner being. We are all material beings of flesh, blood, and bones, and that's it. Our spiritual life, according to Marx, is simply a physiological response to observation and experience, but there is nothing spiritual about us. Life stops at that, which is visible and material. The immediate implication of this is that listen to this for Karl Marx, the greatest need of man is to have his material needs met. Once this is accomplished, harmony will follow. Hence, Marx's desire to create conflict between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, the boss and the worker. Since man is a material being confined to a material-only existence, then man needs to fight for his material well-being, whatever it takes. And as the poor are able to get more and more from the rich, balance and harmony will be accomplished in society. But here's the main question. Here's my main question: How did Marx? go about convincing people that this is indeed man's greatest need. That is all material. How was Marx able to sell this radical idea to so many in the world? Here is the critical point. Don't miss it. The answer is this. If you are going to sell this radical idea to the world, you have to do something to people's minds. In other words, you have to find a way to produce a different kind of thinking. Thinking, thoughts, thinking. That will be conducive to the spread of this particular materialistic philosophy. There's really only one way to do it. You have to turn people into atheists. You have to turn people into atheists. You have to remove the idea of God from people's minds. Therefore, Marx's philosophical materialism led to what the article called coercive atheization. Coercive atheization, meaning atheism must be forced into people's thinking. Now, here is the relevant quote I want to share with you from this article. Please listen to this, and I quote In order, To build a kingdom of righteousness on earth, according to Marx, it is necessary to root out from the mind of humanity, the illusory hope of a kingdom of bliss in heaven. I'm going to repeat that quote. In order to build a kingdom of righteousness on earth, according to Marx, it is necessary to root out from the mind of humanity, the illusory hope of a kingdom of bliss in heaven and quote, the central idea then is this for Marxism to work. You have to root out of the mind. What? The hope of what? Heaven. If man is simply matter in motion, then matter is really all that matters. Now this leads us to the point made the point made. What in the world does any of this have to do with the helmet of salvation? It has everything to do with the helmet of salvation. And here is why the helmet of salvation. As I will seek to prove has to do with two realities, your mind and your hope, your mind and your hope. That is the point being made Therefore, if Marxism along with its philosophical materialism are truly about rooting hope from the mind by convincing man that he's nothing more than matter in motion, then only Satan can stand behind that system. You see where I'm going with this? Marxism is satanic. Because it seeks to do what the helmet of salvation is meant to protect us from. Let me see if I can prove it. As I said, the helmet of salvation has to do with two main realities your mind and your hope. Why these two? Here's why. Your hope, listen to this, your hope is fueled by your thoughts. Your hope is fueled by your thoughts. Wrong thinking can diminish, minimize, and in some cases even destroy hope. Proper thoughts are therefore the fuel of hope. Where do I get that from? Well, first, I get it from the analogy itself. There is a reason why Paul used the helmet. He is addressing our thinking, the way we think, our thoughts, our minds. But secondly, I get that from Paul's own words, which he wrote elsewhere in first Thessalonians chapter five, verse eight, the apostle Paul also spoke of the helmet, but he qualified it even more. And he called it the helmet of the hope of salvation, the helmet of the hope of salvation. Did you hear that? The helmet of the hope of salvation. This is the relationship then. This is why I bring Marxism into our considerations for this morning regarding the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is hope fueled by proper thinking informed by God's promises. The helmet of salvation is hope fueled by proper thinking informed by God's promises. In other words, hope and biblically informed thinking go hand in hand. The two shall never be separated. Therefore we can know with certainty that the spiritual battle in which we are all engaged and which the helmet of salvation helps us fight is ultimately a battle for hope connected to thinking. Consider once again, the historical illustration of Marxism. What did Marx desire to remove? the hope of heaven. And from where did he desire to remove it from the mind, from people's thinking the helmet of salvation. Then is about proper thinking that leads to hopeful living, proper thinking that leads to hopeful living brothers and sisters. This is where the battle rages. The fiercest, the mind is the main battlefield for, for in the mind, hope can be retained. Hope can be increased or hope can be diminished and even lost. It is all about the mind, the way you think. This also exposes one of Satan's specific plots against us. Listen carefully, listen carefully. Satan knows that hopefulness is rooted in proper thinking, which can only take place in so far as our thinking is consistent with the promises of God regarding our sealed destiny in Christ. Thus, if Satan can get you to think wrongly about it, then the door into hopelessness has been cracked open. It is all in the mind. Listen, my friends, if you have ever been tempted to think that sermons in general or that the Bible in particular are impractical for daily life, then think again. Think again. Let me ask you this How is your thought life? Do you realize that this is, without a doubt, one of the most practical and important aspects of your Christian life? Why, you may ask. Here's why. You are always thinking. Even now you're thinking. Right now you're thinking. You have thoughts in your head. And you're always fueling or depleting hope. You're always fueling or depleting hope. We understand then that if hope is fueled by proper thinking informed by the promises of God, much of the hopelessness and despair experienced by Christians at any given moment are the result of improper, misguided and misinformed thinking. Hopelessness comes from an in Proper use of the mind. If you are experiencing any of you, any level of hopelessness or despair right now, I can tell you based on the authority of God's word, you're not using your mind correctly. Or we could put it like this. Hopelessness is fueled by thinking that grows increasingly detached from the objective promises of God's word. The Bible has a lot to say about our minds, but especially the Bible has a lot to say about this connection between proper thinking and our hope of salvation. So now I want to make an attempt at connecting these dots in a practical way. I want to see if I can help us think of the helmet of salvation in terms of everyday life. At this point, we'll ask the so what question, what are we to make of this? In what ways are we to act? Now, this is a good place to transition into our final consideration for this morning, which is this, the commands implied the commands implied. It's warm in here, isn't it? It's just me. It's probably just me. The taking of the helmet of salvation implies a multi-dimensional call in a general sense. uh, This imperative to take the helmet of salvation which is to be understood as hope fueled by proper thinking, informed by God's promises is a call to the purposeful engagement of our minds in all things as a rule of life. And my brothers and sisters, this is a lifetime process, but that's a general implication of the call to take the helmet of salvation. Let's dive a little deeper. I want to give you three implications we can gather from Paul's instruction Regarding the helmet of salvation, as we engage in spiritual battle, the apostle Peter will be our teacher for some of this. Number one, you must develop, you must develop God word mentality, God word mentality in the face of suffering. God word mentality in the face of suffering. Taking the helmet of salvation means that even in suffering, we don't take our thoughts off of God. He always remains our anchor. Consider 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 19. Consider these words: servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing when Mindful of God, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Did you get that? Mindful of God in our suffering, in the midst of our suffering. As we go through the suffering, we must be mindful of God. It is an issue of the mind. And then 1 Peter 4:1, the apostle says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of, does anybody know? Thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What do we make of this? Suffering well as Christians has a lot to do with proper thinking. Suffering well as Christians has a lot to do with proper thinking, meaning thinking that is God's word. Full of God, mindfulness of God. We must arm ourselves with a Godward perspective on suffering. You know why I'm telling you this? Because suffer we will. Suffer we will. Number two, you must develop sober mindedness in the face of chaos. Sober mindedness in the face of chaos. What do I mean by that Christian Christian, my brother and sister, you must bring your thoughts under control. This is in part what it means to be sober minded. Therefore at a minimum, at a minimum, the helmet of salvation implies this essential truth as a Christian bought by the blood of Christ and indwelt by the spirit. You are never free to think as an independent autonomous creature, but only and always as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You must think at all times. You must think, you must use your thoughts always at all times as a person under divine authority, which means you must develop thinking consistent with God's word and God's promises. When the Bible tells us to take every thought captive to obey Christ, it is not suggesting it. It is not suggesting it. Do you realize that therefore you are never entitled to hopelessness or despair? Do you realize that you're never entitled to that? Hopelessness and despair is, is a direct disobedience to what the Bible tells us to do with our thinking. Christian, are you walking in obedience to Christ with regard to your thoughts? How? Please notice with me how Peter tells us to do so. Don't miss this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we read these words. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your Hope, are you seeing the connection that thoughts and hope set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in second Peter, in first Peter chapter two, verse 11, Peter, Peter tells us, therefore to keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Can I be brutally honest with you? One of my great disappointments has been to see how many Christians have responded to the chaos around us. So many Christians seem to have lost their sober mindedness. They have lost their ability to think clearly. And they have given full vent to their frustrations, their anger, and their pride. Don't allow yourself to do that. Let me tell you this you lose your sober mindedness, you lose your influence in the world as a Christian. Put the helmet of salvation on by being sober-minded. Keep your thoughts under control and the authority of Christ by setting your hope on the grace to be revealed. Now, this leads us to the third and final command that I see here. You must develop a pilgrim mentality in the face of opposition. You must develop a pilgrim mentality in the face of opposition. We're going to get a little deeper here. Okay. Are you ready? Since the helmet of salvation is about fueling our hope of salvation through proper thinking informed by God's promises, then Satan's scheme. Listen to this. Then Satan's scheme in this regard will be threefold. Confuse our thinking for the sake of compromise So that we forget our hope. Confuse our thinking for the sake of compromise so that we forget our hope. But let me try to be even more specific. And I'm going to use a little, a little bit of technical terms here. Okay. Keep your mind engaged. Okay. Don't, don't leave me just yet. Stay with me for a little longer. We need the helmet of salvation. We need the helmet of salvation. And I'm going to explain these terms as we go along, even next Sunday. We need the helmet of salvation because Satan seeks to create, and you don't have to write this down right now, okay? Satan seeks to create epistemological confusion, okay? I told you. That leads to theological compromise, which results in eschatological forgetfulness. You can think on that all week. We need the helmet of salvation because Satan is creating epistemological confusion that leads to theological compromise, which results in eschatological forgetfulness. Okay. All right, let's pray. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) In considering this point, and before I seek to explain some of it, I see the need to remind you of what we learned in verse 12. In verse 12, Paul explained to us that our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. In other words, our battle is against invisible and worldwide powers that are constantly promoting anti-God thinking in the world. The moral collapse of our society right now is the visible manifestation of the truth that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan's influence, my friends, is extensive. It reaches into our personal lives, our family lives, our social life, and even, yes, political life. And as I mentioned, his methodology is threefold. He creates epistemological confusion that leads to theological compromise, which results in eschatological forgetfulness, hence the need to wear the helmet of salvation. So let me try to explain in brief terms. By epistemological confusion, I mean confusion regarding who has final authority over your thinking. That is what epistemology is. It's about how do we know anything? Who has final authority over your thinking and your worldview? Who is it? How do we know what is true and what is false? Who has authority over your opinions? Is it the culture or is it God's word? You know what I'm seeing today? I'm seeing a lot of preachers that seem to be taking the cultural message into the church rather than preaching to the culture. That is happening. Now, that epistemological confusion concerning the authority over our thoughts leads to theological compromise. By this, I mean the following. Once you begin to question who has authority over your thinking and your knowledge, epistemological confusion, Then the compromise of truth becomes appealing and you begin to play with ideas that are clearly contradictory to God's word. Finally, all of this results in eschatological forgetfulness, which simply means this. We begin to forget that we Christians are pilgrims. We are pilgrims destined for a better world and that this is not our final home. Let me expand on that a bit more by returning to the historical illustration of marxism. Seems like this sermon has been super long. I don't know why. <laughs> it happens sometimes. For Marx, listen to this, for Marx, your value as a person, listen to this, this is critical. Your value as a person was determined only by your contribution to the collective. In other words, You have no value beyond your utility to the whole, to society as a a totality. Therefore, your views are valued only in so far as they contribute to the advancement of the views of the collective. Is that not what we're seeing today? Let's do a little bit of a cultural analysis, right? Is that not what we're seeing today, my friends? Is it not true? that there is an effort taking place right now in the culture at large to create narratives that are meant to force people into conformity and that if you speak up, you get shamed. Isn't that true? These are narratives that eventually become meta-narratives. And a meta narrative is an idea which is generally accepted as the reference points from which you need to understand all of life. And the more people accept these meta narratives, the more difficult it is to stand against them. Why? Because these narratives become meta narratives. When they become meta narratives, then you have the perfect setup for the creation of a culture of shame, a culture of shame. Is this a danger to Christians? Is this a danger to Christians? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Here's why. The greater, and please follow me here, the greater the pressure from these meta narratives, the greater the temptation to submit to their authority. What is that? Epistemological what? Confusion. Then we are tempted to go along with it to avoid the shame. Which is theological compromise, all of which contributes to a greater attachment to this world and a greater detachment from the world to come. Eschatological forgetfulness. We're living it right now. We're living it right now. Listen, let me just. Go off here a little bit and and talk to the, the young people here. Some of you are getting ready to go to college. If you don't have these things clearly in your mind, mark my words, you're going to lose your faith. You're going to walk away. You will. How do we avoid this dangerous satanic temptation? Well, you put on the helmet of salvation, which means that you must develop three things that counter Satan's methods. What are those three things? Well, if he creates epistemological confusion, what do we need? Epistemological clarity. In other words, the word of God and his promises are your final authority for how you think. Number two, if Satan wants to tempt you into theological compromise, then we need theological courage. Theological courage. In other words, you must not be afraid to live according to your biblical convictions. Christians need to bow to no one except the Lord Jesus Christ. And number three, if Satan wants to create and produce eschatological forgetfulness, what do you need? Eschatological mindfulness. You must remember your final hope, which is precisely what Satan wants to remove. Christian, let me develop this third point just a bit more and we'll be done. Let, uh, let me speak to all of us, Christian. Don't seek to get too comfortable in this world. Don't seek to get too comfortable in this world. Some of you are beginning to see some hopelessness and you despair for you because you're losing your world. This is not your world. This is not your world. Don't get too comfortable in this world. You are a pilgrim, you're forgetting your eschatology. You are just passing through. In fact, here's a warning for all of us. Listen to this. An ongoing effort to get comfortable in this world may just be evidence that you are beginning to forget about the next. And here's one of the main evidences that a Christian might be getting too comfortable in this world. The fear of men expressed in an excessive desire for self-preservation. This is particularly true for pastors. It is all pastors. I can guarantee you around the world. They are struggling with this excessive desire for self-preservation because they know that truth can get them in trouble. How do we deal with this fear of men? And by the way, those of you going to college soon, you're going to deal with this fear. I heard the story, true story of a girl. Just because she doesn't want to go along with this idea of calling people whatever pronoun they want, she said by her own count, she has lost about 20 friends. Just because she won't call a transgender person whatever they want to be called. How are you going to deal with that pressure? This is real. This is happening in the United States right now. How do we deal with the fear of men? Consider what Jesus said. Pay attention because it has everything to do with the helmet of salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Where? In hell. What is that? It is an eschatological point. It's coming. Do you see it? What is the solution for the to the fear of men? It has to do with our hope of salvation. In other words, our attitude toward men here on earth is determined by our reconciled relationship with God in heaven. We begin to fear men when we start to forget our eschatological hope. And this is what the helmet of salvation is all about. It is about remembering that which is eschatological. The last thing, the end days, our final hope and home in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. I'll finish with this. This world is corrupted and therefore you will experience much discomfort in it. In fact, you should expect it. But this world is also passing away. Don't get so caught up in all the current events that you begin to diminish the certainty of the promises of God concerning a better world. In which righteousness dwells and Christ reigns in perfect peace. Don't let the present chaos and confusion and decay discourage you from the hope of salvation. Put the helmet on. Remember our hope and be courageous. William Gurnall said this, and I quote the goat must browse for food where she's tied. Likewise, the sinner must feed on earth and earthly things to which he is staked down by his carnal heart End quote Christian. Don't be like the goat. Don't be like the goat. Don't be like the world. Instead, set your mind on the things above where Christ is and do not lose sight of the hope of glory, which is to come. We are pilgrims. Guard your thoughts and fuel your hope, which is yours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. And as always, I pray, Lord, that you will redeem even uh, the confusion that I might have created. And I pray, Lord, that you will take it all and use it for your glory. Father, help us to develop this pilgrim mentality, to put the helmet on, to remember that our salvation is not bound to this world, but that there is something better coming. That the Lord has promised that he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And that yes, in this world, we will find and face tribulation. But we need to take heart because Christ has defeated the world. And he's our hope. And in him, we rest. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.